the nomenclature that we're using is not great because the levels are really not sequential. And so giving them numbers, it almost makes it feel that, you know, it's just a little bit harder. And if you do one more thing, then you're going to unlock the next level as if you are kind of in this video game where you have to power up and get to the next one. And that's not how it works, right? Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As now, always, I'm Alex Roy, the former director of special operations, futures and insights at Argo AI, uh, the founder of the Human Driving Association. That's enough for today. You have such a, you have like this menu of job titles <laughs> to choose from. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Um, it's great to be here uh, with you again, Alex. And I'm really excited for this conversation. This is something, um, you know, we've got a really great opportunity to talk about something we've discussed a bit on this show in a bunch of different contexts. But I think like uh, with this guest and, and, and the work that she's been engaged on, um, I think it's a really fascinating uh, opportunity to, to address some some really important stuff around AV safety and how, how it is that this experimental technology has been on our roads, you know, racking up all these miles for so long and, and have it all be done relatively safely. Um, and I think- Wait, wait a second, Ed, hold on a second. Where's Kirsten? Uh, Kirsten, unfortunately, uh, she's really looking forward to this conversation. She got pulled away by her day job. Um, unfortunately, we don't pay her enough to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to keep her away when her, <laughs> to keep her here when her day job needs her. So um, unfortunately, she's in uh, LA with TechCrunch talking about space, I think. Anyhow, space. we're going to- If only there was something to it. Let's talk about our guest because what she's working on is so critically important. And I kind of feel like the intro from you may not convey with brevity the, the absolutely foundational importance of her work. I that then Alex, I mean you're the you're the introduction master. Why don't you why don't you take it? Her name is Francesca Favaro. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly how you pronounce it. Excellent. Her publication she was the lead on a paper which was recently published. Uh, on behalf of Waymo. Francesca, what is your title at Waymo precisely? So I'm the safety best practices lead. Not as cool as your prior title, but uh, perhaps uh, a little bit intriguing. You're very kind. But here's the thing that makes her work so important. Okay, There is a belief that autonomous vehicles will deploy overnight with a software update. That there's no bridge, there's no interim phase, there's no work to be done. It's just going to magically happen. And that is just not true. What is going to happen is that everywhere they have to go, they need to be tested and humans will be involved. And the paper that Francesca worked on, I'm going to read the title and I'm going to let Francesca explain it, is Waymo's Fatigue Risk Management Framework, Prevention, Monitoring, and Mitigation of Fatigue-Induced Risks While Testing Automated Driving Systems. This is a, a big title, but fundamentally what it says, what it means is that is that there is still risk involved in testing and there are ways to mitigate that risk and handle it correctly. Francesca, tell us about your work and your paper. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're you're spot on and you know, this is kicking us off to hopefully a great conversation. So before we get to the paper, let me maybe start with, with what you were saying um, about the reality of where testing is at today and, and kind of like why this paper. Um, 
I think that we have seen trends in this industry for sure. Um, I don't know that I necessarily want to go to the Garner hype cycle, but we have definitely seen more of the big headlines on the race to autonomy and whatnot. And what I am very pleased uh, to see, or maybe very pleased is a little bit of an overstatement, is that at least from Waymo's side, we are really kind of embracing the reality of what it means to develop this technology and what it means to um, testing it in a way that is responsible and that is safe. Um, I think we kind of got in a little bit of this game of competition about what everybody is doing. How are you evaluating your uh, level four ADS? And this paper kind of uh, sets us back to the backbone and the ground of the real conversations that have to happen today, stressing that you really need to have a hardcore of safety best practices associated with testing beyond just the readiness determination of something like the Waymo driver. And so that's really what I like about Waymo stance, that we combine the ambition of the scaling and elates the next best thing, but also with the realism of what it takes today. And I remember some of the headlines from um, 2021 that I had seen in, in some you know, big newspapers, things like the inconvenient truth about Waymo. They use driver monitoring. Well, guess what? That's not an inconvenient truth that like you better be doing that. And so I think that that sets us up right, you know, to, to discuss a topic that to some, I think it's it's less sexy, it's less appealing because this is not about the the tech, the planning, the prediction, but it's about really the um, deliberate approach to safety culture that is required to do testing in a responsible way. So it Alex, is, you know, it, Alex, hold on. I, I can see you want to get your teeth into this, but I just have one question before I, I'm going to let you rip in in a second. But I want to start with the history here because I think Waymo has a unique history with sort of some of the risks around fatigue and fatigue management. And I think it's always really interesting, you know, when a, uh, and it's easy to say that something's a principle, but if that principle is tied to something that's really fundamental to your history and big decisions that were made about the direction of the company, I think that that you know, that really means something in a, in, a, in a real way. And so I'd like if you could just sort of share, Francesca, for those who don't know, sort of a little bit of Waymo's history with um, some of the issues that this, this paper is trying to address. And then we'll let, we'll let Alex really, really tear in. Yeah, sure. Um, as probably many are aware, Waymo became as uh, Google self-driving. And, you know, that program has now lived for over 10 years. But uh, what some people don't do is that in the very beginning, our, our company was not developing the same type of technology that we are uh, working on today, which is level four uh, ADS technology. Uh, back in 2012, we were working on um, a technology that is uh, probably either level one or level two is, uh, uh, it was more attuned to driver assistance systems, uh, advanced driver assistance systems, um, but they were working mostly at that time on, let's say, uh, lane keeping, so longitudinal control within lane. They were running uh, a very short-lived testing program that uh, perhaps people have seen videos online, and, and if you haven't, they're linked in the paper that we have uh, at waymo.com safety where we were testing this very experimental technology with some of the Google employees that um, had not really hands-on participated into the development. So I was kind of maintaining some independence. 
And what was observed really is that within a matter of two weeks, uh, these trained engineers who were told about all of the disclaimers and the caveats um, and who were told that they were being monitored while using this technology, they very quickly became um over-reliant on it. And so you might have seen, again, some of the videos of people doing makeup and like kind of turning their face to the back, grabbing backpacks, finding cables, chargers, and even falling asleep. So that is part of a broader trend that is um, studied within the human factors community, something that in the paper we call the irony of automation, which is this sort of paradox that the better a system gets, then the harder it becomes for a human who is in charge of overseeing the technology to actually pay appropriate attention um, and also remain what we call like in the loop. And so when you place it in, in, the, in the driving context, um, this translates in basically saying, that the better the automation, the less attention a human driver may pay to the traffic, to the system, to the surroundings, like remaining with an appropriate situational awareness, and that hinders their capability to resume control effectively should they need to. And so I think that's kind of the, the very early history. After that testing, there was this big pivotal moment for, for Google uh, where they decided that, you know what? Um, we're not going to go for advanced driver assistance systems to us the most effective way to counter um, all of these human factors induced risk will be to go for level four technology. So again, let's pivot and let's go from there. And, and since then, um, Waymo has kind of been on the line of level four or, or nothing. So that's, that's the premise um, that we start with when building this paper. You know, I always find it, uh, fascinating when I see the headlines you referred to that, you know, any put one in the car, whether it's two people or one people up front is a sign of weakness or some issue. And, and yet none of the, those stories ever address the fact that you can't go from testing to deployment without this interim phase. That interim phase requires at two people, one in one person, maybe that person on the left, maybe they're on the right, but they've got to, you've got to have phases as you test to uh, some metric before you go to the next one. Uh, and part of that uh, requires technologies that are um, supplemental, like driver monitoring systems. And I'm curious to know, the driver monitoring systems at that at state of the art five, seven, 10 years ago, like how, like how well or not well did they work? Like w- would it even have been possible to deploy them at the time and for them to be truly helpful? So... Um, I think that there's there's a lot of things in your questions that maybe we we need to uh, decompose. Um, I have to admit that at that time, the main focus of that testing program, the one that we have videos on, was definitely um, not on uh, perhaps driver monitoring and some of the additional features that are needed to ensure that that technology can be in that case, deployed safely, because as a level one or or level two, then uh, these driver monitoring systems actually become part of the architecture that you have to consider as part of your um, autonomy feature. Um, Those tasks were mostly uh, looking at the actual um, development of the technology itself for uh, lane keeping or or whatever else the feature was. But uh, the funny story is that one of the interns that was uh, working on 
uh, actually replaying the logs and looking at some of these videos that we had, of course, for safety reasons, uh, was a human factors person. He's actually one of the co-authors on the paper. And, and at the time, you know, he was just uh, inputting the logs, kind of rewatching things, and then started seeing one or two incautious behaviors that made him a little bit unsecure about what to do, escalated to a manager. And that's where kind of things then uh, really then developed into this broader realization like hey hold on let's let's take a um for a second and look into what it actually means to develop something like level two technology um i'm gonna make like maybe a side parenthetical which is uh one of the things i've published on before um uh, actually as part of of uh work for sae which is that we have these levels of, of automation level one two three four five but I think the realization here is that the nomenclature that we're using is not great because the levels are really not sequential. And so giving them numbers, it almost makes it feel that, you know, it's just a little bit harder. And if you do one more thing, then you're going to unlock the next level as if you are kind of in this video game where you have to power up and get to the next one. And that's not how it works, right? Um, I think part of what you were saying, Alex, is that the use case is different. And so when we're looking at that type of technology and uh, advanced driver assistance systems, you end up having, uh, you know, these use case where not just driver monitoring, because everybody talks about driver monitoring, but there's so much more. And there are all these additional functions that we explain in the paper uh, that we can also discuss later on. But like those become um, necessary to develop and package the product together, if that's your use case. When we're looking at level four, it's a little bit different. We still need them. To your point, you still got to develop this, right? You still need to test it. And so an autonomous specialist, a test driver, a mission specialist, however we want to call it, it's still a necessary ingredient for the appropriate development of the technology and testing to get there. And so you need uh, similar features, but at the same time, we're talking about trained drivers and a different type of monitoring that what could be, ba um, could be made available uh, on a scale, let's say for the average consumer. To the point of the technology itself, maybe I cannot speak that much. I know definitely there have been uh, leaps in the, um, let's say both the hardware and the software solutions associated with, with driver monitoring. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you have seen a lot of, uh, uh, startups, but also uh, technology providers of these cameras that have really stepped up their game, not just in, in the sensitivity of the cameras and the precision into uh, maybe tracking your pupil and dilation and whatnot, but also the study of the algorithms that can lead you to make a certain determination of distraction, potential fatigue, um, looking at gaze fixation. So there's definitely um, a lot of, of new metrics that have been developed. Um, maybe, I don't know, you've seen some of the latest videos from Volvo. They are now looking at uh, radar uh, in the interior of the cabin as well. So there's there's a lot of advancements in the um, in the technology for uh, monitoring purposes. Again, monitoring is just one piece. There's other functions that we should be discussing. But the other thing that I wanted to mention is if you look at the scientific research, uh, the academic field, there, like, you have your pick. I've seen uh, papers discussing, uh, sorry, discussing electrooculography, electromyography, some of those 
I don't even know exactly what they do do, but the reality of, of the technology and the reality for uh, a developer like Waymo that is working on this today is, okay, you need to have something that is mature enough, that is reliable enough, that can be adopted at scale. So we can have that conversation. Probably I'll loop in a couple of our experts that, that really follow some of those developments internally for Waymo. Um, but let's let's keep in the um in the back of our minds also the use case and the scalability that is required to make this type of solutions available for the broader public well there's there's an aspect of 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 this that i think is really important that you've just touched on right which is which is that you know they're fundamentally different things when you're talking about and and this has gotten i think way too much confused in the public discourse that developing a system of whatever level of automation that's human in loop that you just release to the public as a, as a product, you know, there's a certain probably level of, of approach and expectation there versus, you know, what, what you're talking about here is actually, and I think, you know, this is, is so important that it's, it's people who, you know, work as operators These are professionals. So, you know, you have the opportunity to not only like train them, you have the opportunity to then manage them. And then I think one point that, that weaves into all this, that you can never expect from just the general buying public, and and I think your your uh, anecdote about an intern sort of picking up on some of these safety concerns and and bringing them up and discussing it, and and I know this features in your paper is culture, right? You can't really expect you know a, a just your consumer that you sell something to to embody a particular culture, but you as a company who's sort of managing this whole you know you know fleets of of of, of development and, and testing vehicles and and the operators of them, you can you can do that. So. Can you talk a little bit about about sort of at a high level, you know, sort of what are some of the differences between making something, you know, where um, for, for just for the general public versus sort of managing holistically like this entire fleet like you are? Yeah, and I think you 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 touch all the right keywords maybe to begin that conversation. The heart of it is the safety culture. That's how the um, the paper begins. So that's the first thing that we mentioned. It's like, okay, look, this this fatigue management program is part of um, a broader take to risk management that is part of the safety management system that we have at Waymo. And so there are specific goals associated to, to safety culture and like fostering transparency and make sure that uh, we can always improve on approaches to safety that is a little bit unclear how they would translate to uh, a consumer type of application, right? So perhaps the easiest thing in that case is to start bottom up with what are the um, the technological solutions that can be implemented. And uh, for sure, we have seen a lot of advancements in driver monitoring, as uh, Alex was alluding to. Uh, one of the things that we discuss in the paper is perhaps this notion of making sure that you combine both direct monitoring with indirect monitoring. And Waymo holds a few patents that are called out in the paper. Um, and the the gist here is that the traditional solutions are just looking at uh, eye tracking, posture, head movement, uh, perhaps can be complemented with indirect monitoring of how uh, a user is actually interacting with the environment that surrounds them. Uh, because there is the potential to 
perhaps miss uh, cues of complacency, of fatigue, uh, and of cognitive distraction, even if your gaze, you know, is, is staring at the road right in front of you. Um, I do it all the time. Like I start singing a song again in the zone. It's like, oh, whoops. And, you know, each of us subjectively has different modalities by which this, this can um can happen. And so indirect monitoring looks at things like, uh, when was the last time that I tried to push a button, change a radio station, uh, roll out the window, just to see how much I am actually using and disposing of the environment that surrounds me. And then, of course, the more obvious things like, um, have I tried pressing the pedals? Have I tried to change or um, steer a little bit? So kind of all of the inputs that you wouldn't more normally expect to, to track. And combining that information with the direct monitoring of head, eyes, and, and body posture um, so that you can have maybe a more sensitive indicator. So there's definitely um, options and suggested solutions in the paper that are either automated today or are easily automatable. And so those for sure would be the first stop when you're looking at more of a consumer type of applications. But then there's the, um, the more intangible part of this, which is the the culture and the education for the prevention, for the mitigation, for sharing the lessons learned toward building that culture. And that's where the decision from Waymo to publish this paper actually can be uh, contextualized in. Uh, we wanted to have a more explicit conversation about these topics. And that's why we decided to publish the paper. Uh, this paper actually has existed as an internal document for over three years at Waymo. And we were looking at some of the conversations that were happening in the standardization world, which is where I work as my day job. Um, and we decided that this could have been a good contribution because we've had um, a lot of talk about um, drunk driving, perhaps still not enough, um, but there's definitely educational components that we have seen um, uh, being pitched uh, as part of broader conversation with the public. And also maybe starting on distraction and distracted driving and the reality to us was that fatigue is a it's a very interesting form of inattention when you compare it to distraction is a way less deliberate behavior that everybody naturally experiences and so perhaps the paper could have been a first step to really begin some of these broader conversations, bringing attention to, to the problem of inattention in general, but then also on the problem of managing fatigue uh, at a broader level. So let's talk about your paper. Uh, there's a really interesting chart on page seven, which uh, is a tree that starts with driver inattention and then, uh, and then splits it into general forms of inattention, insufficient attention, and misdirected attention. Uh, I, I think a lot of people don't even understand the difference between these two things. Can you walk us through um, how you define these and the subsets of these? Yeah, and you know this, this is a great taxonomy that was developed by a number of experts uh, in the human factors field, and it's a taxonomy that is also used uh, in Europe, and it serves to guide some of the standardization and harmonization across how this terminology is is used. So let's start with inattention as a definition and, and go from there. So the first thing is that inattention is conceptualized as uh, a mismatch between the driver current resource allocation and that 
that is demanded by the activities that are critical for safe driving. So there's, there's a mismatch, there's a gap between the demand and the allocation provided by the driver. Then what the uh, picture in the, in the paper showcases is kind of like, okay, why does this mismatch happen? And what are the possible categories? And so there is a category of insufficient attention. And so what the term tells you is that the allocation provided by the driver is insufficient to meet that demand. And then there's one that is about misdirected attention. And so uh, maybe the allocation could be sufficient, but it's actually tuned to a different type of activity. So when we look at insufficient attention, then you start asking exactly what can uh basically be the source of, of that insufficiency. And so you have the sleep-related attentional impairment, that's where drowsiness and being actually asleep uh, fell into, and so kind of the fatigue realm. And then uh, in general, the insufficient attentional effort that uh, perhaps also involves um, uh, medical reasons or potential impairment. Uh, so uh, from alcohol, from drugs of certain sorts, those will fall under that category. When instead we go on the misdirected attention, then you're looking at uh, potential incomplete selection of activities, uh, a little bit more on the omission error type of, of discussion, if you will, and then the hardcore of the driver distraction, where distraction can come from external sources, uh, so exogenous to the vehicle, but also uh, internal to the vehicle, and so endogenous. And so this is kind of the inattention taxonomy uh, that um, actually one of the teammates uh, at Waymo was part of, of developing uh, a few years back before he joined Waymo um, that is used throughout Europe. Uh, if you follow some of the, of the developments, uh, Europe has been very active in the past two or three years to develop not just standardization, but also regulation um, associated to what they call uh, DDAW rather than DMS. Um, they use the acronym DDAW, driver drowsiness and attention warning systems. So to be a little bit more specific uh, than the simple driver monitoring systems that we use uh, more frequently here in the U.S. So this, uh, this framework or this, this taxonomy, uh, is this used to train the uh, I guess safety, uh, safety drivers or test specialists or mission specialists, I don't know what you call them at Waymo, to, to explain to them what the correct... Um, I guess, cycle or uh, pattern of observation is in the vehicle while observing the system drive? Um, yeah, so the we call them autonomous specialists. That's the name we, we give them. Um, we give a little bit of history in the paper. Uh, but yes, a lot of the content that you see, um, well, not just in the beginning of the paper, also, of course, the framework itself, was actually abstracted from training modules that we... Um, have developed uh, for the sake of the general training of autonomous specialists. Uh, I should mention that, you know, this is a paper about fatigue risk management. Fatigue risk management is part of the broader inattention management. And so, yes, this taxonomy plays a role in making that distinction. And the paper details just the portion of that training that is associated to fatigue. And so it's associated to the sleep-related attentional impairment that we see here. Uh, but there are other pieces that, um, and policies, for sure, that tackle the issue of distraction and the uh, 
broader topic of, of inattention. Uh, so throughout the paper, a lot of the visuals that you see, those are actually copied from uh, training material. So when I was um, at Argo, and I would often uh, host passengers in, for rides, which uh, and we would have a you know what we call test specialists up front, and I would often ask the uh, the passengers before with into the vehicle if they'd ever gone scuba diving or mountain climbing <laughs> or uh, any other hobby which required some training and some awareness of what you should and shouldn't do while enjoying your sport. And so in this chart, I. I I, I was absolutely fascinated by uh, seeing it visually. The section which says um, incomplete selection of safety critical activities. Uh, have, have you ever gone uh, scuba diving, Francesca? Ed, either of you? No, I have not. That's something I, I'm missing on my uh, bucket list. So one of the things that they always tell you is you should you need to check your depth, check your air pressure. We should also look around and enjoy yourself. But one thing you never want to do, no matter what is if you have a little itch, uh, you, you don't want to like scratch it. If, if scratching that itch somewhere inside your suit requires you to no longer pay attention to other safety critical tasks. And so for people who've never gone scuba diving, you know, you, um, or let's say mountain climbing, you want to make sure your handholds are secure before you ascend to the next point in your climb. You want to make sure that your, that every, that your, um, your ropes are sufficiently well placed such that you, before you take the next step, you don't fall back down. You want to make sure that you have everything is redundant and that a mistake does not become a critical problem, that there is a some form of backup in the system of what you do. Uh, and uh, for every person, there's a hobby that they understand that will connect to this chart. And I think the key to people understanding why humans and fatigue management and mitigation is so essential to testing autonomous vehicles is, is that the audience um, it needs to connect to this by whatever hobby it is that they connect to in their own life. And I think that's why some of this is so abstract to the average person. Uh, this is magical belief that technology will just save us without understanding the human role in the loop. Yeah, I think there's there's a definite truth about what you're saying. And, um, you know, prior to joining Waymo, I was a professor. So I, I definitely have my own set of um best practices in relation to, to teaching and also understanding the learning models of different individuals. Uh, one of the things that we do as part of the continued education block is making sure that a lot of this material gets presented multiple times, right? And so you have retrainings that are mandatory. You have uh, re-evaluations because the reality of it is that the first time um, you are exposed to this type of content, you may have a sort of theoretical understanding. You think you get it, but you don't really understand the applications. And then Maybe you start doing your, um, let's say, general training as an autonomous specialist, then maybe you do your defensive driving training, then maybe you do your fatigue training. And then what happens is after a while that you have done uh, maybe um, supervised operations where there's still a trainer with you in the vehicle, and then maybe the ones with the dual specialist, the second time you're presented this content, uh, it actually has a slightly different meaning to you. Maybe you start actually uh, pasting situations that have occurred in the field, um, and you start really understanding that each of these terms, each of these boxes, has a very, very practical and, and meaningful impact that you had not realized uh, before. 
So that's definitely something that we um, also receive feedback on, on like how to improve the training material from the autonomous specialists. And we hold uh, listening sessions, but I'm going to go with a, a personal anecdote uh, here because like, like you, Alex, I also have hobbies. And one of those hobbies that I took on after I graduated was I started flying and I was an aerospace engineer by training. I knew the ins and outs of how to select the engine for the specific type of use case and concept of operation and blah, blah, blah. And you do your envelope. And I was, I think in my second lesson that my instructor was, uh, very hard trying to explain to me that women tend to be weaker uh, than men. And so you really need to use your trim tab appropriately so that the airplane is balanced on its own and you don't have to put as much pressure on your controls. Otherwise, you're going to have sore arms forever. And I had a baby at the time. So holding a baby after having sore arms from flying, not a great idea. Um, And all of a sudden it clicked like these super theoretical stability lessons that I heard during graduate school that, you know, you learn of like, yeah, yeah, this stable equilibrium is unstable equilibrium. But until you had practiced it and really experienced firsthand what it meant to have sore arms the day after, because you had not appropriately trimmed your airplane, that's when things start clicking. So I think I also reevaluated a lot of the theoretical learnings that I've had over the years. Thanks to that. Yeah. So there's, there's this human element to the stuff that you're talking about that I think, again, I think people, uh, one of the ways people misunderstand this technology is just thinking about it as technology and not thinking about sort of the human element. And, and, you know, this whole paper is about how important humans are to, 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 to maintaining safety during, during, you know, public road testing. But one of the things that jumps out at me that's fascinating is fatigue, I guess, is something that also you have automated systems that can that can monitor for fatigue or for signs of fatigue in, in drivers, but that there are actually human checks. So there's a human in the loop checking on the human in the loop. And I find that a, a fascinating thing. And again, I think something that just intuitively and naively people wouldn't assume is the kind of thing that a self-driving, you know, technology company would be would be doing. So 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 explain that sort of seeming sort of contradiction there. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's a great um, realization. And I think it also goes back to something that Alex was alluding to before when he was talking about having two people in the car, having a dual test drivers and whatnot. So it's definitely all related. So I'm going to start maybe with, with that aspect first, which is a lot of people think that when you are undergoing testing, uh, the fact that you're perhaps having uh, two people in the front seat, one is that, um, you know, holding the uh, overseeing uh, job and potentially disengaging or just being ready to take over control if there's a safety critical situation that requires. So, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the main test driver. And then there's another person that is sitting in the front passenger seat that is maybe overseeing what the technology is doing or just there for support um, purposes. And there is um, maybe this implicit realization that just because you have another person that can be a sufficient guard against um, risks like those induced by fatigue. And that's one of the uh, early things that are discussed in the paper before we present the framework, because um, we had done that for a few years and we understood that 
this type of, of barrier of defense is, is great to have. And so, of course, it's welcome, but it's not sufficiently consistent or reliable uh, to be sufficient on its own. And that's why you need to have these um, very complex, if you will, but also systematic fatigue risk management framework that looks at prevention, monitoring, and mitigation. Um, we had looked at... Um, surveys, anonymous surveys, but also like in-person listening sessions from the autonomous specialists to really understand what were the concerns related to um, human to human, to put it like you were at uh, type of, of cross-check for fatigue and all sorts of, of concerns. One was um, suboptimal positioning. Uh, if you look at any video out there, you will always see this frontal camera that is looking at eye tracking. You might see um, uh, top view cameras, uh, but also this other like secondary person is probably there and may be preoccupied with other tasks. Um, beyond these uh, potential for, let's say, misdirected attention because they have other tasks to attend to, there's also a component of, of social pressure that we could not discount. And so when you had those listening sessions, you would hear both sides, right? On the side of maybe of the main specialist, the sort of degree of pride associated with not showing fatigue signs because you also alternating those positions. And so that becomes kind of an interesting dynamic that you should not um, again, uh, discount when you're understanding how reliable it can be. Um, but also, you would have the completely opposite end of the spectrum. You might end up over-relying on the opinion of the second person and say, okay, I don't have to, you know, subjectively and personally uh, just be responsible on my own to self-identify fatigue because there's this other person that has that task. Um and of course, the, the issue you were alluding to, this second person could also be subject to fatigue themselves. And so uh, you kind of get up in this, this vicious cycle. So how do you solve it? Well, you solve it by not just relying on, on these type of elements. And this is not the only human element that you can have uh, present. We were discussing driver monitoring. We mentioned about these redundancy across uh, direct monitoring and indirect monitoring. One of the direct monitoring solutions that we present in this paper is based on human raters. What are those? Those are people that are looking at um, a video stream of what's happening in the cabin and try to make an assessment of how likely it is that that person is actually experiencing fatigue. And so this is also a human element that showcases humans that could be subject to fatigue. That's also kind of a monotonous, repetitive task, uh, as we were kind of alluding for the dual specialist. But also there is an inherent problem of... Um, how to appropriately assess reliability of that rater by a human. And so what do you do? Well, you really do safety engineering and design around that. We have an automated monitoring that is based on an algorithm, and we don't trust the algorithm on its own. That's why when the algorithm flags, we have human raters step in. And so you have this combination of uh, human monitoring and automated monitoring, but also on the human side, you have more than one rater. And so depending on the uh, situations and a number of factors, you can have two, three, four raters that are assessing uh, the same situation so that you can have a sort of cross-validation across these human raters. So there's definitely human elements. There's definitely the recognition that there may be um, failures associated to the human components in here. And this is why we take the steps to design the framework in a way that 
it's not overly uh, sensitive to potential failure of a single rater being fatigued or a dual specialist. This is why we create all these other functions. Uh, the paper lists over 20 countermeasures. Um, and we believe that they are necessary for, for a reason, right? So that's really the message that comes out of the paper. This is the extent that we have gone through, and this is uh, what we think it's, it's necessary to responsibly address the problem. Um, and so again, maybe to some of the themes that we haven't really uh, maybe double-clicked on explicitly of, of saying it goes beyond monitoring. There needs to be this entire structure um, across also the prevention and the mitigation functions uh, toward developing a, a deliberate and appropriate safety culture that does not happen overnight. Uh, so I'm going to say something uh, that uh, maybe I'm channeling what Ed is thinking, that to put in context what you're saying, you know, when people say that autonomous vehicles should be here already, and the fact that they're not ubiquitous and you know scaled means there's a flaw of the technology. I, I it, it, it's absurd because fundamentally the right pace of deployment is whatever is the safe pace of deployment. And that depends absolutely on what you're describing. And I, I always say to people that when, uh, if two companies enter the same city with equivalent technology, the company that is more cautious and handles the human factors uh, more carefully is the one that's going to be there for the long term. Because the other one's going to have an incident first, an incident that happened because there was not a safety culture baked into the testing. I couldn't agree more. And so like wholeheartedly there with you. But I want to highlight maybe the added second layer implication of what you said. If the second company has an incident that could have been prevented by an appropriate safety culture, it impacts the entire industry. So both companies at the end of the day may not have uh, the ability to operate in, in a given um, locality, right? And that's, again, the reason why we want to be a little bit more active in sharing these papers and in having those those discussions. That's really the, the job that I do. Um, I am kind of at this nexus between the internal Waymo ecosystem and the external standardization activities. And so if you read the paper, like it, it's awfully well written. But the other thing is that we really attempted to make it a sort of general, generalizable recommended practice that was technology agnostic. And anybody can like understand the basic functions of prevention, monitoring, mitigation, the blocks of continued education and awareness and reporting, real-time vigilance assessment, supplemental engagement and adaptive scheduling for, for the function that they observe. Uh, but then you want to use different implementations. You want to change the countermeasures. You're free to do so. Um, the publication of the paper serves to have those conversations. And even if you don't want to have the conversations, you just want to take the paper and do whatever you want with it, that's also okay, right? So that's that's the spin that I think um, led us to say, hey, you know what? We've published a ton of uh, kick-ass research. I'm so proud of, of the team that I work on for the evaluation of the Waymo driver, but maybe we should take a step back and start talking a little bit more about the testing and what really goes into the development of the technology. But again, like I'm wholeheartedly in support of, of the statement you gave. So on the standards front, just before we, I'm just curious. So, so I, I know, you know, um, SAE J3018 is sort of this guidance sort of broadly for sort of how to 
broadly train, manage, you know, your human safety operators. Um, I know that, that Argo, um, when Alex was there, you know, they, they took the step of certifying to that. I think this is obviously your paper is, is, is more specifically, I think, addressing a, a, a kind of slice of that. But if you could put it, are there other standards besides 3018? Uh, how does this relate to 3018? Kind of put this into that standards context, since that is such a big part of, of what you do. Yeah, so there's, um, I would divide maybe them in two categories. The first one is standards on conducting on-road operations. And so J3018 is definitely the, the standard that, um, you know, has existed since 2015. Not many people know that, you know, it was there even before the, the tragedy that we all are aware of 2018. Um, it has been updated through the years. It was revised following that crash. Um, it was revised also following the guidance that came out of the AVSC, which is a private consortium under SAEITC. So the AVSC also has issued uh, an excellent best practice um, that involves the in-vehicle fallback test drivers, what we call the autonomous specialists, um, stages of selection, hiring, uh, training, and, and general oversight procedures. Uh, the AVSC document compared to the J3018 is a little bit, is a little bit more uh, in-depth. Um, it's not, it doesn't carry the same weight of, you know, the, the SAE STEM mark, which is the whole industry consensus-based type of association. The ABSC is a private consortium. Uh, but the interesting piece is that, for example, fatigue monitoring in the ABSC best practices mentioned in the J3018 document, it, it still isn't. And so that's definitely a conversation that, um, I'm hoping to have, and, you know, I'm part of, of that committee myself. So, that's definitely discussions that we have had in the on-road um, driving automation uh, committee for the next stages of of revisions. There are UK-based uh, standards, so there is these a pretty detailed and long document that the British Standardization Institute has developed on safety operators. Uh, they call it trialing rather than testing. Uh, that's called uh, Pass One Eight Eight Four. And it's kind of the equivalent of J3018 in the UK. Um, but a lot of it is, is applicable also in the US. There are very few details that are specific to, let's say, the um, uh, UK regimen for, for licensing. They talk a lot about like points and, and whatnot uh, that um, we don't really use in the United States. So these three are really the backbone of what I would say are the operations specific um, for ABS technology uh, in terms of standards that we have today. But there's also a whole other category, which is standards about driver state. Uh, and so both SAE and ISO have developed over the years, let's say, uh, broader takes on, on the terminology and the definition of how you can discuss and potentially measure uh, human performance and uh, state in the context of automated driving or in the broader context of driving, so without a specific discussion about uh, automation technology. So there are driver drowsiness uh, and driver fatigue states uh, standards that are being developed in SAE right now. Uh, or that have been developed in the past. One is uh, J3198, if I don't mix up my numbers. Um, and there's a, a, an ISO one uh, that is developing parts. Um, and the first part is the part about definitions that's ISO 21959. Um, so there's, there's a number of them. Uh, if you look at the paper, the reference section is is pretty beefy. So there's definitely a lot of those called out in there. 
Um, and that's that's the work that our research team also also does, like really an in-depth understanding and studying of um, this type of, of documentation beyond, let's say, the scientific literature on the topic. Have you uh, done any research about the safety of your um, vehicle operators outside of work? after having completed your training? So that is a super delicate question um, because it actually has legal implications as well. Um, And that's actually another thing that uh, points me back to to the paper being drafted as a sort of technology agnostic type of uh, practice. Waymo has a very specific structure in the way that we work with autonomous specialists. They are not Waymo employees. They are uh, hired by Transdev, uh, so our transportation partner. And so we work really hard with our transportation partner who shares our same commitment to safety to make sure that we are aligned on the vision. But regardless of, let's say, the autonomous specialist, the test driver being your own employee or being a TransDev employee, uh, looking at the safety beyond what they do at work, again, can have legal implications. There are definitely things like um, background checks uh, that, you know, a driver could have a disqualifying event. All of a sudden they get a DUI ticket or something of that nature. In that case, I think there are. there are actually laws that require you to actually proactively talk about that with your employer because they could potentially be disqualifying. But I know that this is really um, like a hard topic to discuss because of the legal implications and I'm not a lawyer. So uh, I would say yes and no. There's there's definitely things that J3018 and the ABSC best practice point to in relation to these disqualification events, let's call, let's call them that way. Um, but in terms of what a developer may be able to do, well, uh, you know, that's kind of a gray area that, that you probably want to discuss with a number of different stakeholders. I actually, I, I, I was actually thinking of something completely different because it, anecdotally, I, anecdotally, um, the uh, people that I was working with who were working in Argo vehicle operations almost universally said that they had become safer drivers outside of work because of the (laughs) safety culture um, and rigorous training um, that they went through to become vehicle test operators. And it is ironic, you know, I'm skimming through the paper as you've been talking. It is ironic that, um, that the most interesting work about how people can become safer drivers has been done by companies like Waymo who are trying to develop automated systems. Because virtually none of this um, is baked into basic driver training in, you know, uh, in, certainly not in the United States. I've been to uh, Latvia and Iceland and Germany, and I've attended some of their just basic driver licensing. And there is way more discussion there about fatigue than you'd find in the United States, which is at most, at best, um, drink a cup of coffee every two hours. Yeah, I like your qualification better than mine, uh, which I have a constant reminder of from my husband, which is since I started working at Waymo, I drive like a grandma. Me too. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I used to have these uh, nickname in high school. They called me Schumacher uh, because of, let's say, certain uh, speeding tendencies that I used to have and definitely no longer have also after becoming a more responsible mother and a human being. 
but uh, yeah, he keeps telling me that I grab like a grandma and that I'm very um, like that. I stress him out because I am constantly giving this uh, sort of, you know, live commentary about what's happening. Did you see the pedestrian? Like there's a cyclist, like there's an oncoming turning path or whatever. So it's, it's funny. But one of one of the lessons here, though, too, I mean, the reason you have to have all of this is that is that in some ways, I mean, all of us could always be safer, better drivers like at, at any time. Right. There's always room for improvement on that front. But but but, you know, at a high level, like one of the reasons that you have to or the main reasons you have to do all of this work that you're doing is because and again, I think this is something that people don't necessarily always understand or, or even remember is that driving and being a safety operator are actually two quite different tasks. And in a way, they're both difficult. They both have a lot of responsibility, but certainly, right, like as, as you know, as someone who is sort of babysitting a system or whatever, you're, it is different. And I think one of the traps you can fall into when thinking about all this is to, to consider them to be the same and say like, hey, if I test you and you're driving, that will tell me whether or not you'll be a good safety operator or not. Um, and so if, I don't know if yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think we go back to that comment we touched upon before that also the level of automations are not sequential. So I think one of the, the broader realizations that came with the paper is that um, the solutions will be use case dependent. And so you need to cater a framework like this to the exact concept of operation that you're running with. And the responsibility of a human driver in a level, well, in a level two vehicle, but I don't want to say level two vehicle because it's in a vehicle that has level two features within it or in a vehicle that may have certain technology features that are level one or general active safety um, are completely different than uh, those of a testing safety driver that is overseeing uh, the operation from an ADS. And so it's a more on a passive capacity, which kind of brings us back to this notion of complacency and the irony of automation that we were discussing before. So I think that the, the bottom line is that the prevention, monitoring, and mitigation, as well as the five implementation building blocks that are presented in the paper, those two has a, um, have been robust to all these different use cases, but then the specific, again, implementations by which you want to, uh, in fact, potentially implement something like uh, monitoring, whether direct or indirect, or this supplemental engagement that is needed, those will be heavily use case dependent. Are you excited for a future where your children will not have to drive? I definitely am, but I would say I'm excited for a future in which I don't have to drive them around, right? So... Um, I could definitely use use more rest time rather than having to worry about uh, drop off in, in school zones and pick up from whatever activities. Um, I, I am excited, but also I am excited by seeing uh, the work that Wimo is doing in a responsible way to get there safely. So definitely, uh, I am so happy to be working in this field and to have uh, swapped from aviation for, for ground vehicles, which have really an impact right now on my daily life. You know, one of my happiest moments was uh, visiting family in Phoenix and taking my daughter, who was about three at the time, uh, in a Waymo. And, you know, she had ridden me many times. Um, and when she got out of the Waymo uh, in Chandler, she said, she actually waved said, goodbye, Mr. RoboTaxi. And I was, I thought that was fascinating because she had anthropomorphized the vehicle into a literal character. It didn't even occur to her that the lack of a person in the driver's seat was uh, anomalous at all. And 
it was completely normal to her. Uh, and now she says, she makes fun of me and her mother. She says, you guys are terrible drivers. <laughs> <laughs> my son is so upset with me because I showed him a video of one of my writer-only rides in San Francisco. And he saw the car like coming in on its own. And, um, you know, I was making the video from the interior of the steering wheel turning. I was like, Who, who's driving? There's anybody. Why didn't you take me? I want to do this. So yep. that's, uh, that's definitely something I'm looking forward to, to having experienced too. Well, I'm also more optimistic than ever about the future of autonomous vehicles. Ed, any final comments? Uh, no, I just want to thank uh, Francesca Favaro uh, so much for taking the time to to chat with us today. Uh, she's the safety best practices lead at Waymo. She's the author of a paper we've been discussing today, which is about Waymo's uh, fatigue risk management framework. You can find that at waymo.com slash safety. Also, I just would shout out, go to waymo.com slash research. I feel like every time I go there, there's like so many more papers and it all looks really cool. Like the vast majority of them, I will never actually understand, but I'm sure listeners uh, uh, to this show will find something there that they'll find really interesting interesting. Um, so, uh, Francesca, thank you again for your time. You've been very uh, uh, patient and, and, and helpful in, in helping us understand this, uh, this really uh, fascinating, important topic. No, thank you for having me. This, this was exciting. And thank you to our audience for tuning into another episode. Uh, stay tuned. We are coming up on our uh, annual CES season where we're back for the first time after pandemic. We've got our party planned. We've got a whole bunch of things planned. So uh, uh, stay tuned here to the Atonicast. Uh, there's more great conversations ahead.